Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, recorded on December the 1st, I talk with Goldie Hyder and Jeff Nankaville about Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy. Goldie is CEO and President of the Business Council of Canada. Jeff, a former diplomat whose service included postings in China and Hong Kong, is CEO and President of the Asia-Pacific Foundation. Welcome back, Goldie and Jeff. For listeners, a year ago, Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie, in the company of other ministers, announced in Vancouver our long-promised Indo-Pacific strategy. The strategy is geographic, with sections on China, India, North Asia, and ASEAN, and thematic, addressing defense and security, trade and investment, people-to-people ties, including immigration, refugees, and students, and values, including gender and the Indigenous. In support of greater Canadian engagement in the geographic and thematic sectors, the strategy promised more ministerial involvement, something lacking but necessary in the region. The tempo of ministerial visits has significantly increased. Prime Minister Trudeau has been to the region twice this year, in May for the G7 in Japan and then to Korea, and in September for the ASEAN summit in Indonesia and then the G20 in India. There are more diplomats with a presence in Hawaii and the South Pacific, although lots uh, less in India, only temporary, we hope. There is more military presence with a third Canadian frigate sailing through the Straits of Taiwan, not without incident from the People's Liberation Army Navy and more RCF, RCAF patrols, again, not without incident from the PLA Air Force. A Canadian will once again serve as deputy commander of the UN force in Korea. Ian McKay, our ambassador in Japan, will also serve as Canada's special envoy to the Indo-Pacific, while Paul Topol is our trade representative resident in Jakarta. As to progress, besides the increase in visits, new accords have been signed with Korea and Japan, ASEAN and Indonesia, with an increased presence in the South Pacific. A major conference took place in February in Singapore around education, research, and innovation, something Jeff will speak to. While trade and investment continues to grow, official relations with China are still glacial. The overhang from the two Michaels and Meng Wanzhou episodes, geopolitical concerns, ongoing tensions around human rights, and now compounded by serious allegations of Chinese interference in our democratic process, including targeting of serving members of parliament, something the Chinese deny. There are various investigations underway. The relationship with India, a main source of our new immigrants and students, is also in the deep freeze following Prime Minister Trudeau's September statement in the House of Commons that the Indian government was involved in the murder of a Canadian of Indian origin, denying the allegations while accusing Canada of ignoring their concerns about Khalistani terrorists living in Canada, India has sent home almost half of our diplomats in India. Intelligence from Five Eyes Partners and now a U.S. indictment around a similar case in the United States apparently supports Canada, but we are still no nearer to any kind of a joint investigation. So let's get started. How are we doing in advancing Canadian objectives? Let's break it down like a report card using the IPS framework. And I'm going to start 
with China. And Jeff, why don't you lead here? Well, so uh, so Colin, I think uh, you know, in terms of on its own terms, on the terms of the IPS, uh, I guess you could say the government um, has achieved some of what it set out to achieve a year ago in in publishing the IPS uh, with regard to China, which was to reposition itself vis-a-vis uh, -vis China um, with a message about China as a disruptive global power um, and uh, and a message that that implied uh, efforts on uh, kind of the word containment's not used, but uh, but uh, the, the need to rise to the challenge of China. And, um, you know, the government in the IPS didn't really articulate uh, much of an agenda for other forms of engagement with China, except to say that on global issues, you know, Canada would need to work with, with China. Um, as we've seen over the past year, the diplomatic relationship and the, the high-level dialogues remain uh, pretty much frozen, apart from the, the visit of the Environment Minister, Mr. Guibault, at the end of August to a, a, an Environment Council meeting in China that's a, a body that's been going for 30 years that Canada's always been a part of that has other international players. But um, but I think in terms of a, an objective to, on the one hand, reassure Washington uh, of, of with a public statement of where the government stands vis-a-vis -vis the challenge posed by China as a, as a disruptive power in the world, that that is that is an objective that I would say has has been achieved. It's a, it's a modest one in terms of effort, um, in terms of uh, of other other forms of of uh, engagement with China. Um, there's there's not much progress, but there wasn't much ambition in the IPS document itself, vis-a-vis -vis engagement with China. Okay, Goldie, China. Any comment from? You know, yeah, the government, I, certainly I, the foreign I, interference stuff has come up in a big way. Yeah, uh, look, I'll pick up a little bit from where Jeff uh, Jeff was, which is, um, you know, it's really about Washington when you think about it, right? We can't be offside. And what I've seen and what I've, uh, what I've um, uh, observed is certainly that there is alignment. Washington's policy is effectively one of, of pragmatism, and that's certainly the policy of, of, of Minister Jolie. I, our own words have been eyes wide open, and I think eyes wide open with everybody in the world these days. We're in a very transactional geopolitical environment, and uh, you know, every man, woman, and child for themselves, and we have to have our self-interest and national interest ahead of it. I look at the, the four C's, what Mark Arno talked about when he was minister, challenge, compete, cooperate, and coexist. Those are identical to what Secretary Blinken talks about. So if you're on side with the United States, it's a good place, uh, good place to be. I was at APEC where I heard um, uh, after the meeting with uh, President Biden and President Xi, uh, President Biden himself say, look, let's be, let me be clear, I believe was the statement. Um, we are not devolving uh, from China. We are de-risking and we're diversifying. And I think that's exactly what Canada should be doing. What we need to do, though, is be a little bit more shrewder, a little bit more pragmatic, uh, and learn from others. Look at Australia, look at France, look at Germany. Uh, there is such a thing as being able to be constructively engaged where friends will have uh, disagreements. It's how you do it. It's how you engage uh, in, in, in that. And we have a long history of that. Liberal governments and conservative governments have been able to find a way to walk and chew gum. You don't have to throw one out. And so I'm, I'm, I'm of the view that it's early days. Let's see how this unfolds. But we need to certainly uh, make more progress than we have in the short term. No, and certainly Melanie Jolie's speech, she talked about pragmatic diplomacy, seemed to open the door for exactly what you're talking about, Goldie, that we can trade 
we may not agree with them on values, but we can certainly do uh, engage with them, which was really how Canadian policy was uh, exactly. before we even had recognition. Yeah, it's a back to the future moment, Colin. There's no question about it. Yeah. All right. Stay yeah. with me, Goldie, on India. Mm -hmm. Well, look, first and foremost, uh, the allegations are serious and no one should be um, of the view that they don't deserve the attention of ensuring that you get to the bottom of it. And I think that whether the allegations in the United States, which are now in court, or the ones in Canada, which are still playing themselves out somewhat more politically, um, you just can't brush these aside and be a be a, one who believes in the rule of law. So we leave that to the authorities. It's not a place for, I don't know, I don't think it's a place for Jeff or I, but it's certainly a place for the authorities uh, to do what it is that they need to do to have the investigation and get to the bottom. And we take our lead from the government, uh, our government first. And our government has most recently stated, uh, ministering said in San Francisco at APEC, as a matter of fact, that um, we don't expect the rest of the relationship to go into a deep freeze. We should not stop the bilateral relationship uh, in terms of our trade. We should not stop our business to business ties. We should not stop our university to university ties or foundation to foundation ties. We should not stop the kind of medical research that we're doing or the work we're doing on AI and technology. We shouldn't stop foreign students or immigrants. These things uh, need to continue in a, in, in a way in which we know that this other issue will ultimately be resolved, but we don't want to set the relationship back. And then at some point in time, if the government decides, either government, both of them come to the table and say, we'd like to see a kickstart of the, of the opportunity to do some kind of a trade agreement, call it whatever it is, the early progress, the FIPA, the SIPA, whichever one it is. I almost don't even care. I just want to know that we can get to that place <laughs> one day. Um, then, you know, they can count on the support of the Canadian business community because we are believers that trade is, is good uh, for economic prosperity for both our people. Oh, and uh, I remember the last time I think you were on this with uh, Vic Thomas and I saw Victor yesterday at the airport and he told me that at least now we can get electronic visas and the business visas are back into play, which yeah. is, I think, important. Agreed. And people are starting to go as well. And as I said, we'll take our lead from our government on this. Yeah. yeah. Jeff, anything on India you'd want to add? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I first I, I would in, endorse uh, what what Goldie has said. The signals coming now from the diplomats on both sides is that they're in active discussions and that they're working to contain the the diplomatic dispute uh, kind of in the box that it's in right now. It's important to keep in mind that includes the fact that 41 Canadian diplomats um, were forced to leave India in a, in a in what was in, in diplomatic terms, as, as you'll know, Colin, quite an irregular way of doing it. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, my understanding is that the, some of those people are, are working from other countries in the region. There's a big effort on the uh, Canadian side to, to continue to offer the services that Canadians and others need from the missions, but it's a pretty big handicap. And that's something that's, that's going to need to be addressed at some point. That said, the effort seems to be there to uh, to contain this and not to have it spill over any further onto things that affect trade and investment and people-to-people -people ties. The the two foreign ministers, uh, Minister Jaishankar and Minister Jolie, uh, seem to have a good a good uh, relationship and and that you know that underlines the importance of these things. I think one lesson that I would take away from this from this episode is is uh, something that needs to be part of implementation of an Indo-Pacific strategy going forward is you need to build the kind of connections um, at the government to government level, also through other channels that you can withstand these kinds of episodes, because it's only a matter of time in other 
places. We can all think of countries in the region where you could imagine a Canadian citizen, you know, getting into a terrible consular situation or being sentenced to death or, you know, or or some kind of interference in Canada. Um, you know, they we need to know that these things are going to happen at one time or another, and we need to be ready to to deal with them. I think, you know, looking forward, um, the the national elections, parliamentary elections in India are scheduled for, are set for April, May. And, um, and I don't think you would see any consideration of a different stance from the Indian government of Prime Minister Modi and, and any even, you know, hint of a, a consideration of a, of a change of tack on Canada until until after the elections and then of course we have to anticipate whatever will come out of the out of the uh, the criminal investigation in Canada of, 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 of which we've really heard heard nothing other than than the the statement that the Prime Minister made in the house but and one other thing I would just mention in terms of those having those robust uh, contacts um, this is, you know, there there are good people to people connections, obviously, between Canada and India. I could say for the Age of Pacific Foundation of Canada uh, that, that we're engaging on these things. Um, I'll be going in February along with our, our Vice President of uh, Research and Strategy, Bina Najibula, who joined us a few weeks ago. Um, to the Rizina dialogue in uh, in Delhi, which is which has now become a very big uh, regional uh, think tank event uh, hosted by the Observer Research Foundation in India, and and we're going to take that opportunity to build out our our think tank connections in in India, precisely you know because we're at a time when the government to government uh, lane is is extremely narrow, and there, and there's only so much that can be done. Okay, Jeff, stay with me on ASEAN because you held a big conference in Singapore. And well, it was it was broader than ASEAN. ASEAN, nonetheless, Singapore. I often think is the kind of one of the hearts of uh, ASEAN. How are we doing there? And you can tell us about a little bit. Uh, tell listeners a little bit about the conference you held in February. Well, I love as uh, as you know, uh, Colin and Goldie. I love to do that. And Goldie was there. Goldie Goldie is my witness on this. So. So, um, so we convened, so Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, together with uh, our partners at Universities Canada, the National Association of the University Presidents, we convened this event in Singapore this past February that we called the Canada in Asia Conference, the Conference Canada en Asie. And it was really for the first time bringing together, getting the universities to work together to invite graduates of Canadian higher education uh, to come to uh, a, a gathering that would also include leaders from the worlds of business, from from governments at different levels, government agencies, investment attraction agencies, Export Development Canada, Canadian financial institutions, and uh, and research institutions. And it was a it was a big success. We had more than 530 people actually attend the conference in Singapore. 55% of them were people who are based in Asia, 45% uh, from Canada. So 240 people made the trip from Canada, uh, which is in itself a proof of concept that you can do a big Canada-Asia event as far away as Singapore. And of those who came from Canada, we had uh, we had a federal government minister, provincial minister, heads of investment agencies, uh, corporate CEOs, uh, two dozen university presidents, a Nobel Prize uh, laureate, and and others. And um, building on that, we are uh, at uh, Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, together with Universities Canada, 
um, we're proceeding now to plan for an annual event of that type in Singapore every year. We'll do a big general conference. We had half a dozen themes within this uh, larger conference that we held last February, including agri-food, clean tech, trade and investment, uh, health, uh, social policy. Um, we'll do a general conference every two years with the next one to be in February 2025. And But we're going to try doing thematic conferences in the intervening years and the alternate years. So this February, the site just opened for registration for the Canada and Asia conferences 2024. We'll have a two-day conference focused on agri-food and food security, the 26th and 27th of February in Singapore, and a two-day conference on climate solutions on the 28th and 29th, and an annual uh, gala dinner on the uh, Canada and Asia dinner on the on the 27th. And we're encouraging people to look at at uh, at the website for that, Canada-in-Asia. .ca, um, where you can get more information, um, and that planning for that is coming along well. Now, on Southeast right, Asia, I think perfect. this is... We'll, 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 yeah. we'll put the plug, you've got made the plug, yeah. we'll put the hyperlink into it. Yeah, so uh, on, on Southeast Asia, and I'll, I'll pass to Goldie in just a second, because uh, I think we can sort of speak to the same thing here. I think that's a, that is a, a brighter spot for the government. Uh, we've certainly seen, I think it, it was an important strategic element of the Indo-Pacific strategy was a message about diversifying connections for Canada, for Canadians in their businesses and institutions beyond the traditional relationships that have been established in places like uh, China, Japan, Korea, um, and Southeast Asia is the place where, you know, Southeast Asia and India are the two real uh, areas in Asia where the largest growth is going to be. India, the, the largest, the, the fastest growing large economy in the world, and Southeast Asia, more than 600 million people, a very favorable demographic profile. Um, is an area of great growth. And already before the Indo-Pacific strategy was articulated by the government, we did see a move by businesses, by universities, by um, uh, institutional investors to step up their activity and their presence in, in uh, Southeast Asia, including opening offices. And we've seen a lot of attention by Canadian, uh, by the prime minister, and by Canadian ministers to cultivating the relationships with ASEAN as an organization, as the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, but also uh, leaders of the ASEAN countries. And, and one of the early milestones in that, this is symbolic, but these things count in, in, uh, in that part of the world in particular, was an upgrading um, that was confirmed at the, at the recent Canada ASEAN summit an upgrading of uh, the the relationship from the ASEAN side declaring Canada as a comprehensive strategic partner. And that sends a signal uh, through the system at the same time as, as Canadian trade negotiators are actively working on rounds of negotiation towards a free trade agreement, a Canada-ASEAN free trade agreement, and a Canada-Indonesia free trade agreement. So, so and and the uh, the travel by ministers to that part of Asia has been has been very intense. And one element of the Indo-Pacific strategy that I should mention, um, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, is that the uh, Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada will be opening an office in the region next year. Our working plan is for that to be in Singapore, with funding under the Indo-Pacific strategy that will enable us to establish an office and convening space, as well as stand up some programs targeting the, the building of mindshare for Canada and Southeast Asia and greater connections between that region and Canada. Thanks, Jeff. All right. 
Uh, Goldie, anything you want to add to ASEAN before we move to North Pacific? Well, I was that there. Because I know uh, you've led trade missions to both Japan and Korea recently. I did that, but I was also at the ASEAN meeting of the leaders uh, in Indonesia and Jakarta in September. And I think that uh, this is one where, of course, Canada was invited. The prime minister was there. Uh, we were named a strategic partner uh, of the ASEAN, which is, I think, a, an important development. I would say relationships are are potentially at um, at a high point. There's a lot of mutual interest. Um, there's complementary in terms of our economies, in terms of the trade, uh, we have both an agreement um, under works with the uh, Canada, with the Canada Indonesia for a comprehensive economic partnership agreement. Uh, we are continuing to try and find conclusion to the Canada ASEAN free trade agreement. So somewhere in 2024, 2025, these two things could come together. Uh, and, and as I repeatedly say, business loves the predictability and stability of trade agreements on which to piggyback on and to enter new markets because they understand the tariff policies, they understand how dispute mechanisms uh, exist and so forth. Next year, Minister Ng will be leading uh, trade missions to, to ASEAN again, Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines and Indonesia, uh, as well as Korea are all on the, on the roster there. And so you get, you know, you get uh, a chance to demonstrate what I think the region is looking for from us, which is, um, is are you really serious this time? Uh, or is this, is this just one more episodic popping in and then popping out and then coming back 10 years later? And I think uh, we as a business community are certainly going to be working with the, the government and the government of the day. I don't think this would change under any other government. Indo-Pacific will be a priority. Um, so I think the future looks bright on the ASEAN and we need to keep up the high level of engagement. And I applaud the work that Jeff and the team at the APF are doing um, to do just that. Yes, and I think we all three of us would agree that the, minister, the increase in ministerial visits really does make a difference. That's one thing, certainly my observation from my experience out there was that that was necessary no and question. that has really amped up. Yeah. Yeah, no, even the PM himself has been there twice, so yeah. it's what we need. So, um, and anything more you'd like to add on Japan and Korea? Because I know you participated. Well, I just, yeah, I just want to say on Japan and Korea that um, they have higher expectations of us, let me be blunt. Uh, they're particularly keen on the energy side. You know, this is these are countries that, for their own reasons, in one case moved away from nuclear, another continues to run a lot of, both of them run a lot of coal plants. They want more of our LNG. They're going to get a good chunk of it in uh, in, uh, in 2024. Five, when uh, LNG Canada is up and running, there's a phase two that's already permitted that we should get going on ASAP, because um, this is where I think having an adult conversation about the transition, fact-based, will allow us to say, just like I think the government, I know the prime minister himself has changed his mind on nuclear. I'm afraid, you know, it came 10 years late because we lost all that investment. And I don't want LNG to be the next thing the government changes its mind on when, again, it may be too late and that we're playing catch up. So I, I really think that that's a critical piece of this. You want to be friends, you have to get your friends what they're looking for, right? The second thing I'll just say is uh, my old boss and our good friend, uh, Joe Clark, uh, you know, probably one of Canada's finest uh, external affairs ministers of our, of our country's history, had always said, you know, things work with America when you take things to them. You don't just sit back and wait. So America has moved ahead with a more strategic partnership in the North Pacific, as our own strategy calls it, of US, Japan, Korea. And my view is we need to take to the United States. Look, you may not have put us in IPEF just yet, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, but we want in on this. We, why don't we create a new quad, if you will? I know there's lots of these quads out there now, but another one on the North Pacific quad that says, we're the ones who are closer to this region. We are strategically important. Our defense is going to be critical to the, to the sovereignty issues of, of extraterritorial behavior from others. So I think we have to be thinking even more strategically, particularly on security and defense issues. No, oh, amen yeah. to that. And certainly Joe Clark mm -hmm. with the North Pacific Dialogue, he understood that when he was foreign minister all these years ago. Um, 
Yeah. Jeff, let's, because I want you to say just a couple of words on North Pacific and then get into defense and security. Well, actually, they, I'll, I'll do both because that was the point I was going to make. Um, but uh, first of all, on North Pacific, uh, I, I was also I was in the, the same uh, the Team Canada trade mission that Goldie was on. If it, it ended just a few weeks ago in Japan, and we were together for a Korea Canada forum event in in Seoul just before that. Um, I was really struck by how uh, how warmly uh, South Korea and Japan are inviting Canada to do more with them. Um, uh, and they and they do appreciate even the very modest, you know, by global standards, the very modest step up of the Canadian military presence in the region is uh, is very warmly applauded by them. They they simply like to see more of it. But I think on defense and security, I think the next the next step in a North Pacific agenda for Canada is to have an Arctic strategy, like a proper Arctic strategy, a foreign policy and defense policy strategy for the Arctic, for for Canada, that uh, that is one that encompasses the North Pacific dimension and that really brings it brings it together. And uh, and, you know, a lot of work needs to be done on Canada's um, uh, stance in the in the Arctic and, and what we can do there. But obviously, the security calculation that Canadian planners have to make about the Arctic has changed dramatically since Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine and uh, and the and the very close uh, cooperation that exists in a number of spheres between Russia and China. So I, I think that's in terms of, of the defense and security, the way to develop this going forward with a positive agenda is to is to do what Goldie is suggesting and to to find ways to collaborate more closely with Japan, South Korea, and the United States on defense and security issues in the North Pacific, but extending also to the Canadian and American uh, frontiers and in the Arctic. Oh, I think that's exactly right because our it's just as it took what, four or five six years to get the Asia or Indo-Pacific strategy. The, as you point out, the the framework for the Arctic is uh, came no longer. on September 2019, <laughs> and four years on. Not to right, mention cool. the defense review, which I know is near oh, to near and dear to CGA. Is another one. Sorry. Yes. Well, we'll wait and see. <laughs> All these yeah. are, as you quite point out, are very important, particularly as you, as Goldie and you both say, with uh, Korea and uh, Japan. Goldie, yeah. trade and investment overall. Yeah, look, I think let's uh, acknowledge that um, the government in putting in place the trade mission concept itself, the return of Team Canada, uh, will go a long ways because in many of these countries, government is a necessary uh, ally that you need to go into these markets, just easier to go into it that. I would just say that, um, you know, my experience is that we, we need to read the room now. It's not 2015 anymore. And we have to realize that these countries are very serious uh, about their own security, whether it's their economic security or their national security. And we put out a paper on available on our website that economic security is national security. They're inseparable now. And many of these countries are looking for a serious engagement on how it is we're going to support them militarily and or you know, beyond. Uh, what are we going to do in working together on cyber? What are we going to do to help them secure their, their um, need for food, for fuel, for minerals? Uh, they, these are the kinds of conversations. And so it's a serious time. And it's, it's not a time to go back and talk about, you know, the comprehensive and progressive things we put in the TPP. It's not a time to be sitting there and saying, look at all the small businesses with us. That's, that's nice. 
But at the end of the day, we're sitting across the table in Japan and Korea with, like, in one case, like 80 to 100 billion dollars, you know, com companies. We need to bring our big companies with us, celebrate the success of our Canadian champions. You know, you look at aerospace, for example, Bombardier, MDA, CAE. These are global champions for Canada. You know, we have the same thing in our energy sector, same thing in nuclear with uranium and chemical, or same thing with potash and nutrient. The world respects big, <laughs> even if it's not a Canadian thing. We need to go abroad and we need to go abroad so that we can help. SMEs and indigenous-led businesses, gender-led business, women-led businesses, et cetera. We all believe in that. But if you lead with that, you lose the room. And we've seen that happen too often. We have to be much more um, pragmatic, <laughs> to quote the minister, uh, on this. And I'm hoping that in her own leadership, both ministers are going to bring that about and kind of um, uh, help us be successful in these regions. And, and one thing I would add, uh, Colin, is the provincial uh, government dimension on this. It's really worth noting uh, the step up that we're seeing in the provincial governments and their in their engagement in the region. Uh, Ontario recently announced it would be opening an office in Singapore. Quebec has had a major upgrade of its uh, its offices uh, across the region. Um, also, Alberta and Saskatchewan are renewing the, the things that they're doing. So we are we're seeing a, a real step up in investment by these provincial governments and I think the, the government of Saskatchewan is to be uh, commended for its uh, you know its activism on these on these uh, files and Premier Mo has been a very very uh, enthusiastic uh, advocate for uh, for deepening uh, investment in the region in the case of Saskatchewan with a particular focus on India but not exclusively the Saskatchewan office in in Southeast Asia is doing is doing great work as are the other provincial offices. I'm glad you underlined the provincial role is key in getting their ministers out there. Goldie, people to people, which is the last sort of part of the thing that's, uh, you know, you've been leading people out there and taking the trade missions on a regular basis, but it's more than that. It gets us into migration, it gets us into students, which is how you opened in a way. Yeah, look, you're spot on and you can't um, grow or, or have an opportunity to succeed in business if you haven't taken the time to invest in the relationships. This is not a place where you just show up and say, hey, let's do business and sign a deal today. And we've been very clear with our own members. And I can tell you that we've been able to double the number of people that went on the first trip to the second one. I think we'll be able to double the one that from there to going on the third one because they are realizing the importance of a voice uh, in uh, business voice uh, at the table on, at these trade missions. The, the need to build those relationships that you just can't take it for granted. It's not like all democracies can cooperate, not necessarily. You have to, everybody has to have um, you know, that relationship from a business to business perspective. Uh, we've been working very hard to form and have formed formal ties uh, with our counterpart uh, organizations, sister organizations in, in Korea, the Federation of Korean Industries, uh, you know, in Australia, in, uh, in Japan, uh, in India, with the CII and others, because those outlast, you know, Jeff or I. <laughs> Once the institutions are engaged, the leadership kicks it off, but someone else who succeeds us continues with it. And that's how you avoid the episodic nature that I described earlier. You create the institutions uh, that are able to collaborate and, and work together. And as I said, we need to be uh, creating a drumbeat of our presence there. It cannot be uh, sort of a jack-in-the-box. We've got to show up and we've got to be there. And I applaud again, Jeff, and the work that they're doing uh, to making sure that at least the APF is there on an annual basis and bringing others in like universities and businesses to help uh, collaborate and cooperate and promote the Canadian flag. No, the follow-up is critical. Now, Goldie, mind you of your time, my last question to you is what still needs to be done? And because you're very good at prioritizing and then 
well, the final question I always put is, what are you reading these days? And then you complete yeah. your plane. All right. Um, yeah, this will be the one time nothing will be delayed. And I gotta, I gotta miss my flight on a Friday evening. So thank you for that. Look, I think the, the I will just say this out of respect to our politics. Um, we are, we can't think short term here. This is a long game. It's a long play. And so we've got to be committed and we've got to be fully committed governments, business, academia, nonprofits, etc. Uh, for that long term, and uh, it will pay off. And we have to act like our pension funds. You're not going in to make a quick buck or turn it around in a, in a year or two. You're going there with a 10 to 20 year horizon on secure, stable, you know, business that's available to you. Um, so I think that's the uh, that's the the critical piece that that for me is. Uh, important that we on the outside advocate for, because we can't have new policies every time there's a new government. You know, so I'm hopeful that even if there is a change of government, inevitably there will be one in democracies. You don't just suddenly say, well, we're going to throw it all out and start start again, because then it speaks to the episodic nature. That's my my observation on that. In terms of what I'm reading, I just started uh, literally yesterday a book called The Fixer. Uh, it's by a, a gentleman by the name of Bradley Tusk. Then it's actually the story of how Uber was um, able to get uh, uh, into the New York City marketplace. And um, it is one about uh, how startups kind of go against the grain of what traditional advocacy and traditional uh, lobbying would be by mobilizing the public. And I think that those who know me when I was in my Hill and Knowlton days will know that I've often said that we are in now in the parade building business. With all due respect to our public, uh, those who seek public office, they're largely followers now. Um, and because they're beholden to movements and special interests and so forth. So how do we educate the public? Your work here in the podcast is a great example of that. People listen, maybe they change their opinions, it opens their minds, and hopefully Jeff and I aren't speaking from two extremes. So we need to find a way, and what this book talks about is, is how do you uh, go against the grain? And, how, and if Uber gets into New York, Uber gets into the world, and that's exactly what happened. Perfect. Goldie, thank you so much. 247, away you go. <laughs> You're a man of your word. Thank you. All right. All the best. Uh, Jeff, stay with me because I, we, yep. I want to finish up because the people-to-people -people stuff, which is something Asia-Pacific has always yeah. been very good at, I want you to say a little bit about that and then, and then come back to the a bigger question about what needs to be done and you know how would you prioritize it? Yeah, so so uh, on the people-to-people on the -people side it, it is as goldie was saying it's about building those robust relationships and you know we do have we do have examples that, that can't be replicated but give us a, an idea of, of of sort of where to where to aim for with our highest ambitions you know between canada and the us there are innumerable professional organizations you know subnational government uh, connecting organizations uh, business organizations uh, university networks and so on we have that, you know, Canadian institutions and businesses have those kinds of very rich, complex, organic sort of webs uh, of networks uh, with uh, with parts of Western Europe and parts of the Americas, and with, to some extent with Australia, New Zealand, uh, and so uh, it's about really building building familiarity. And what what we're trying to do at APF Canada is and it's the mandate that we've had since since we were established uh, through an act of parliament in 1984 is to is to build those connections to help to create the conditions for those connections to be established and to and to flourish so these canada and asia conferences really the ultimate objective is to is to broaden and deepen networks for canada to connect canada connected people across asia with each other to strengthen the chambers of commerce 
uh, serving Canadian uh, you know business uh, communities in those markets, um, as well as building networks for Canadian businesses to to be recognized as uh, as high quality uh, partners and providers of goods and services and and surveys that we've done. Um, you know, rigorous uh, surveys that we've done of business leaders in Southeast Asia, for example, indicate that the main reason that these uh, business leaders are not doing very much business in Canada, according to their own accounts, is that they just don't know much about Canada. They don't know Canadian business people. They don't know the regulatory environment. And the good news is that's a that's an addressable problem. And they're and the other good news is they're they're favorably disposed towards Canada. We still have in this world. A very strong brand as a country, uh, you know, of high integrity and uh, highly educated and and creative and advanced uh, thinking kind of a population. Um, so so you know, there's a lot there's a lot to build on, but we're just trying to to create through our programming, and you'll see this coming out with the launch of our Singapore office, which will have a convening space uh, starting uh, sometime in 2024 and for at least the next five years. Um, we will be actively looking for partners across Canada. So for for podcasts, podcast listeners, um, you know, uh, look us up and uh, get in touch. Get in touch with me and our our teams because we'd like to work with you to see where there are gaps where we can help to to create the 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 forums, the venues, the networking occasions where these connections can be made. At the same time as we will be uh, providing support for research and joint research projects of, of researchers in Southeast Asia and Canada on topics that are relevant to the interests of the people and countries in, in both, uh, you know, on both sides of the Pacific to build those habits of cooperation that we hope uh, that some of them will prove to be very sustainable in the, in the long term. And so that's a, that's a big project. It, it happens to be basically what the foundation was created to do. And I'm very pleased uh, that we have the opportunity. I'm happy to be where I am today at a time when there's this this uh, genuine wave of enthusiasm across Canada for uh, for a different and um, a much richer kind of engagement with uh, with the Indo-Pacific region. Well, as you point out, it's all about being there, and I'm certainly delighted that you're leading the Asia Pacific yeah. Foundation, and I congratulate you on hiring uh, Nina, who is of course one of our fellows and has been a very active player and certainly yeah. knows the region so you're and, you're hiring well so my, my, i guess my yeah. last question to you is what have you learned over the last year that you didn't know before because you're in asia hand you, yeah. you know you china and you know this stuff has this yeah. last year taught you anything well yeah and i i wanted to first in very point form uh manner address the like the what's to be done what's to be done next i think uh and i think goldie would agree with these priorities uh, if he were not on his way to the airport you know, Canada Canada needs to spend more globally on defense to be to be credible. Yeah. It's an urgent issue with the Europeans um, who are very vocal about it privately and publicly. But it's also it's just important for our credibility with Washington and with uh, and with uh, partners and potential partners in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, we also need to raise our development assistance spending. Most Canadians don't realize that we're in the bottom half of the of the rich countries when it comes to our aid effort as a as a percentage of our of our national income um, it would be great for the government to build on or future governments to build on this indo-pacific strategy by having a global foreign policy uh, strategy with an arctic dimension to it 
Um, and the other thing uh, which really needs to happen domestically is all the projections and ambitions we can have for increased trade with Asia in both directions can't be realized unless we solve our infrastructure bottlenecks in Canada. There needs to be a concerted national appreciation and effort of uh, you know towards what's needed to to ensure that we are making the investments domestically to be able to to do business with with Asia in the kind of volume that the opportunity presents for those for those who can who can uh, who can take it i think the one you know one thing i've learned i mentioned the you know what i heard when i was in uh, south korea and japan um, the, the, the real, the, the, the warmth uh, there and the keenness to have more from Canada is, is palpable. Like you can really, you can really feel um, that and the invitation is there for Canada to, to do more. I think the, the, you know, when the LNG Canada project comes on stream, which is supposed to be in 2025, that'll be a, that'll be a huge thing. It's hugely anticipated in the region by the, by the national players in in places including uh, Japan uh, first and foremost, but also South Korea, Malaysia, and China, um, that it's you know keenly anticipated, but um, but they they will be very disappointed in Canada if we can't do more in that area, and um, uh, so you know I think that's uh, that's something that needs that needs a lot of attention. Uh, but I was really struck, you know, as I said, the modest investments that we have made in stepping up our defense capability are really enthusiastically applauded by our, our interlocutors in Japan and South Korea. And, um, and they give full credit to Canada for, for that as an initial effort. And they're, they're looking forward to more. Oh, and that sounds like the Americans as well. All right. Now, my, my final question is, what are you reading or streaming these days, Jeff? Yeah, so this well, I, I'm going to be escapist here. I read a lot of stuff, a, a lot of That's nonfiction. Okay. I read a lot of nonfiction for you know for my for my work, and it's one of the absolute pleasures of the job uh, to be able to do that. Um, but um, I, I'm I'm also a fan of historical fiction, and I have been reading the novels in the Flashman series uh, by George MacDonald Fraser. <laughs> um, Superbly you know, researched historically as well. Yes, they are. So they are meticulously accurate. So, you know, Flashman is a roguish character um, of fiction um, uh, who who has his adventure sort of between between the 1830s and, uh, and 1900 and uh, finds himself in all the big situations of that era, the charge of the light brigade. I just finished reading the novel about the the it's called the Great Mutiny about the Sepoy Mutiny in 1857, and I learned a lot yes. through that. Very meticulously researched, um, and uh, and for streaming, I'm I'm a big uh, in my spare time. I'm a big space geek, and uh, so I've really been enjoying the the series on, on Apple TV for All Mankind uh, that projects a fictional world where the Russians beat the Americans to the moon by a few weeks in 1969, and that triggers a space race that continues instead of what happened historically, where, where the space race totally petered out by 1972, um, you, you had decades of a space race that, that leads to missions, bases on the moon and, and eventually to, to Mars. And uh, it's, uh, it's very well done. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I find that very enjoyable. And one of, the, one of my recent thrills was uh, this Canada-Korea forum 
um, that meets annually uh, is now co-chaired on the Canadian side. The chair on the Canadian side is Mark Garneau. Um, so it was really, really fun to chat with him in Korea about these things. Well, McPherson and Flashman and For All Mankind, those are great recommendations. I haven't seen them For All Mankind, but I've certainly read a lot of McPherson and Concur with you entirely. They're not yeah, George, all George McDonald Fraser, that's it. George McDonald Fraser, but extremely yeah. well, yeah. exactly, extremely well researched. Uh, Jeff, thank you. And uh, thanks to Goldie and Absentia. Thanks for <laughs> listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Goldie Hyder and Jeff Nankabil. We will link to both the Business Council of Canada and the Asia Pacific Foundation websites where you can find excellent ongoing work on our Indo Pacific relationship. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go to the producer, Joe Calnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. <laughs> <laughs>